The year, 1853. The place, the Black Sea. A Russian attack on a weaker country threatens to start a world war. An unlikely set of allies with dubious motivations rally to defend the sick man of Europe. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is the beginning of my really big series, the capstone to season one, the Crimean War. I have planned this series since I first imagined this podcast, and I hope you guys are ready. Today's episode is the Crimea, part one, the sick man of Europe. We will today begin the larger story of the Crimean War, a mostly forgotten conflict that does not deserve to be. Not only does it contain some of history's most iconic but most misremembered scenes, including the legendary Charge of the Light Brigade, which we will talk about, but it was also the first industrial war, the first modern war, the first mass media war, one of the most important wars of the 19th century. Man, there's so much to get into. If you want to begin with a little more background, if you're really sketchy on any of the context this time period, that is okay. I am here for you. I have released a short introduction, Introduction to the Crimean War, which also functions as a short primer on European warfare before this war begins, what was called Napoleonic Warfare. You don't have to listen to that, it's not essential, and I'm spending the entire first part of this episode establishing the time period we're talking about. But if you need a little bit more basic background on this time period, the countries involved, and my overriding focus in this series, that's where you can find it. There are also maps on my website and social media for you to follow on, links in the description. So I encourage you to take a gander. Did you listen? Awesome. Hope it helped. And if you didn't, also awesome. Let's go. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources and some especially hand-drawn maps as I do for all my series will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. The Crimean War is a very large topic. There are many different interpretations of what I'm telling you. You're getting the James Hauser version with lots of sarcasm and streamlining, but still... Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Let's begin the long march to the Crimea. Why do wars begin? Why do countries, people, societies resort to violence to sort out their differences when other options are more productive and less painful? Why do countries, nations, and even peoples choose war? The origins of any war are hard to explain and usually disputed. And guys, I got my work cut out for me today. The origins of the Crimean War are some of the most obscure and difficult of any conflict in history. I got to explain a lot of things today. So once again, we got a longie over 90 minutes. But my main points in this episode are twofold. First, that every conflict, every war is a product of its age, its mentalities, its fears, the beliefs and cultures and ideals of its people. And second... Well, the reasons that wars begin. So there's this belief, which seems so obvious it almost goes without saying, that countries go to war because they feel strong. But I don't think that's usually true. Countries don't usually go to war because they feel strong, but because they feel weak, vulnerable, 
insecure. Even if they're clearly stronger than the country they attack, they feel that it poses some threat, if not a military threat, a threat to their vision of the world or people they feel obligated to protect. There's also this belief, right, that leaders, big business, or the conspirators, you know, the elites, they're the primary architects of war, that they steer the unwilling masses into a confrontation. But again, the truth is not so simple. Sometimes the government and the powers that be don't push people into war. Sometimes the people push the government. Popular enthusiasm, public opinion, war fever can be entirely grassroots and organic. It doesn't mean the leaders don't necessarily lead the people into war. The people lead their leaders or force their leaders. See, the Crimean War was not a conflict of the governments of the four main actors, Britain, France, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire, wanted The ruling elites of those countries decided to go to war not because they were strong, but because they felt threatened, and not just from the outside. These countries all faced the rising power of public opinion, popular agitation, mobs and masses that took events into their own hands. They were haunted by the shadow of revolution, the great boogeyman of their age. They would go to war in fear of and under pressure from not only outside threats, but their own people. Fear, insecurity, and vulnerability caused the first modern war. Today, we will begin the story of the Crimean War. We're going to take a broad look at Europe in the early 19th century, the Victorian age, and see all the political, social, economic, and cultural factors that would cause and shape the Crimean War to make the Crimean War what it was. We're going to look at all the major powers involved and their motivations and their fears. We will see the first shots fired in what will eventually be called the Crimean War. Though we won't go to the Crimea itself until next week. There's still a year of warfare pretty much before the Crimea even gets into the picture. And we'll see how Europe was drawn into a terrible war that nobody wanted, but all of them helped to create. And I'll tell you why it matters at the end of our story. Today is part one, and at the end of part five, we'll tie it all together. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. Because this is the beginning of an epic descent into war, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, do your nails, yell at the neighbors, do the thing you need to do. So step off the steamboat, adjust your top hat, and prepare to do some advanced lying, aka diplomacy. Either we stop the war from starting, or we go on campaign. We're going to begin the story of the Crimean War with a concert. In 1814, diplomats from every major European nation gathered for a big conference-slash-party in the shining city of Vienna. There were thousands of lords and ladies in their suits, uniforms, and dresses, fighting duels, having affairs, putting on feasts, and drinking each other under the table. But the Congress of Vienna had an important mission to accomplish aside from all this tomfoolery. They had to put Humpty Dumpty, that is, Europe, back together again. See, everything had gone to hell 25 years ago, when the French Revolution began in 1789. The French people overthrew and eventually executed their king and queen, and then marched across Europe, spreading revolution at the point of a bayonet. Then a brilliant general named Napoleon Bonaparte seized power, proclaimed himself Emperor of the French, and tore the European order apart. 
It took almost every other country in Europe combined to bring Napoleon's empire down, and he was finally defeated for good at Waterloo in 1815. So, I just glossed over like thousands of hours worth of content right there. So when the dust settled, the great powers of Europe met at Vienna with one goal. Stop something like that, whatever it was, from ever happening again to banish the shadow of Napoleon from their nightmares, to put the genie of revolution back in the bottle, to turn the clock back to 1789 and pretend that the last 25 years had never happened. There were five European great powers at the time of the Congress of Vienna. Five great powers. They're gonna be the same five great powers throughout this series. They were <clears throat> the United Kingdom of Great Britain, the economic and naval superpower with a global empire the Kingdom of France, with the old Bourbon dynasty now restored. Still a great power, even if they had been defeated. The Kingdom of Prussia, a powerful military state in northern Germany with its capital in Berlin. The Austrian Empire, where the Habsburg dynasty ruled Central Europe and Italy from Vienna. And finally, the Russian Empire, ruled by the Romanov Tsars from St. Petersburg. I'm probably gonna mispronounce czars, czars. It's gonna be a constant struggle to pronounce that correctly throughout this series. So there are your five great powers, Britain, France, Austria, Prussia, and Russia. Boom. These great powers had all been fighting like cats and dogs for centuries, but the French Revolution woke them up to the fact that their biggest threat wasn't each other, but their own peoples. The fate of King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, the shadow of the guillotine, hung over the Congress of Vienna just as much as the shadow of Napoleon. If they wanted to keep their heads on their shoulders and off a pole, they would have to work together. Britain, France, Austria, Prussia, and Russia would work in concert to roll back the clock to 1789. They became known as the Concert of Europe. That we're running things now. We are the consort of Europe. We're like a proto-UN, but only the big boys are invited. So at the Congress of Vienna, the consort of Europe decided on a set list, a program. International conflicts were to be avoided at all costs. After all, war meant chaos, chaos meant revolution. The great powers would work together to prevent any revolutionary outbreaks and resolve their differences diplomatically rather than using war. Order and stability were the name of the game. To prevent any of these chaotic wars, the concert agreed to a balance of power. No one great power should be too much stronger than any other great power. France had been Europe's dominant land power for centuries, so the balance of power was largely designed and crafted to keep France in check. Prussia was given large territories in Germany and Austria and Italy to balance their power against France. Russia was given domination over Poland and Finland. And Britain, perhaps the most powerful of all five powers, was left to rule its overseas empire in the Americas and India. There you go. Balance. Balance of power. Perfectly balanced. As all things should be. So this was the consort of Europe's set list. Maintain, number one, maintain a balance of power. Number two, prevent great power war through international mediation and cooperation. Number three, crush revolution wherever it raised its head, like a game of bloody repressive whack-a-mole. They would put the genie of revolution back in the bottle, turn back the clock to 1789, pretend the French Revolution had never happened. The consort of Europe and the balance of power they established would last almost 40 years. The Crimean War would destroy them. See, the Congress of Vienna was supposed to freeze Europe in that 1789 status quo, when the nobles ruled over the pe peasants unchallenged and no one questioned the old order. 
But this was futile. By trying to resist the tides of history, the old order threatened to be swept away. The 40 years between the Congress of Vienna and the Crimean War saw some of the most rapid, earth-shaking changes in human history, changes that the Concert of Europe were helpless to prevent. So guys, for the rest of this first section, I am just going to talk about Europe in the 19th century. This is the part where I'm usually like, you know, so we're in this year, when is this exactly? But in this series in particular, when is this is a critical part of the story, maybe even the point of the story. Because my theme for this series is that the Crimean War was not just a product of its time, a product of the changes that had come to European society and culture, but that it also changed that society and culture. The Crimean War was a product of, in a conflict that changed, the history of Europe and the world. Ultimate proof that military history does not exist in a vacuum from other kinds of history. To understand what changed, we need to understand the age. It was an age that took the name of a woman, a shy, sensitive teenage girl who was never supposed to be in charge, but her older male relatives died before her. When her uncle William passed away in 1837, the 18-year-old Victoria became Queen of Great Britain. She would rule for 63 years and seven months, a record broken only by her great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth II. It was Victoria's British Empire that would dominate the 19th century, the Victorian Age. Victoria's Britain was probably the freest country in Europe. Unlike the rest of the continent, its people had, a free, had free speech, a free press, kinda free elections, like only 7% of the people could vote, but that was still like 7% more than any other country in Europe. Only America was more democratized than Britain, and America still had slavery and women couldn't vote, so it's not a high bar, right? <laughs> But elsewhere, it was an age of repression. The Concert of Europe, desperate to keep revolutionary and liberal ideals from spreading, silenced and censored free speech, public protest, the free press. Secret police opened mail, spied on dissidents, arrest and arrested and exiled them. They demanded order and compliance from all classes of society and saw any move for reform as a first step to revolution. The French Revolution haunted the rich elites of Europe and they had to keep their hold on power. Ideals of liberation, human rights, freedom, and consent of the governed were brutally suppressed. The aristocracy held on to power bitterly, even as the ground shifted beneath their feet. Because the world was changing, whether they acknowledged it or not, they could not put the genie back in the bottle. Because Europe might not be having a political revolution, but it was in the midst of a different revolution. The use of early machine tools and steam power had begun in Britain during the 18th century, but only by the 1830s and 1840s was the Industrial Revolution in full swing. The European economy moved from a still very medieval basis to massive furnaces that smelted tons of steel powered by carts of black coal dug out of the earth. Soon new industrial cities were booming and massive factories turned out the manufactured cloth, tools, and metals that would make the world modern. It was an age of steam. Britain took the lead, building the first steam engines and the first steamboat companies. By the 1830s and 1840s, metal tracks crossed the landscapes of those industrialized countries that could afford them, Britain, France, northern Germany, northern Italy. Ships crossed the Atlantic and plowed the rivers of Europe, powered by steam rather than sail. These innovations made travel cheaper and faster than it had ever been before. 
Steam power marked the first great transformation in human movement since the taming of the horse thousands of years earlier. The Industrial Revolution allowed the creation of other new technologies. The invention of replaceable manufactured machine parts allowed for the building of better weapons, better tools, better devices. The mass production of clocks, gears, lathes, jigs, pins, and wires made new inventions possible. The discovery of the electric current in 1820 allowed the invention of the electric telegraph, which could transmit messages in Morse code within minutes. Suddenly, London could talk to New York in a day. The invention of photography allowed people to see a reproduced image from hundreds of thousands of miles away that could almost be real. Rail, steam, clicks, and flashes. Europe suddenly seemed a lot smaller. Everything seemed to be moving a lot faster. The center of invention, industry, global finance, and world trade was Great Britain the world's first industrial nation. It was crisscrossed by railroads, booming with industrial cities. British factories produced over 40% of the manufactured goods in the world, and half the world's trade was carried on their ships, which were increasingly steam-powered. British economy was dominant, overwhelming, the center of the industrial age, what Benjamin Disraeli called the workshop of the world. Even as northern France, the German Rhineland, Belgium, and northern Italy were slowly catching up. But it was also an age of poverty. The Industrial Revolution was born on the backs of human misery. Britain was the world's first urban society, where the majority of people, for the first time, lived in cities rather than in the countryside, pulled in by the demand for labor. The desperate urban poor filled the streets of London, Paris, Vienna, and Milan, living in ramshackle tenements and begging for morsels in the gutters. The new industrial city was a nasty, smoggy place where children as young as five worked in the mills, and the streets were filled with garbage, corpses, beggars, and sex workers. The English author Charles Dickens described this world vividly in his novels. You guys might be most familiar with Bob Cratchit's poverty-stricken family from A Christmas Carol, published in 1843, 10 years before the Crimean War. Flora Tristan, a French radical and feminist, described the horrid conditions of the new urban world. There exists no bond between the worker and the English master. If the latter has no work to give out, the worker dies of hunger. If he is sick, he succumbs on the straw of his pallet. If he grows old or is crippled, he is fired and he turns to begging furtively for fear of being arrested. The Industrial Revolution created a new social order. In the old days, Europe had been divided into just an upper and lower class, the elites, the nobles, and the peasants. Then a small middle class had emerged, the urban professionals. But across the cities of Europe, a new class was coming into existence. The urban worker, the blue-collar worker, the man or woman or child who grew up and lived and died, usually young, in the shadow of steam and smoke. The working class. But in much of Europe, the working class was still a dream. Eastern Europe still functioned on the old laws of serfdom, where peasants were tied to the Lord's Manor, with very little rights and protections against their noble landlords. The serfs were unfree people, miserable and downtrodden, forced to work up overtime to make up for the gambling losses and bad investments of their autocrats. Throughout the 1820s and 1830s, many European countries would finally abolish serfdom, but not all. Most notably, Russia, which would still have serfdom when the Crimean War began, and that is a big part of that story. 
It was an age of reform. The plight of the working class stirred the heart of good-natured reformers, many of whom wanted to rebuild society on the Christian ideal, to build the new Jerusalem. Reformers, mostly middle-class liberals, saw a new glorious society emerging from the misery of the cities and the depravity of the modern world. Despite opposition from the upper class, they did achieve some successes, especially in Britain. These included the abolition of slavery, work reform laws, and the spread of education. More people across Europe could read than ever before, and this meant that it was an age of mass media and public consciousness. The middle classes read self-improvement novels and good Christian fiction, while the working classes read penny dreadfuls. They all read newspapers and sensational broadsheets, including real and lots of fake news. The influence of mass media enabled reformers to get their ideas out to a broad audience, and the telegraph allowed this news to travel faster than it ever had before. Governments everywhere became more and more aware of and susceptible to public opinion. Some people saw the Industrial Revolution as one step on the path to utopia. A young German radical named Karl Marx saw the rising grimy workers of Britain, France, and Germany and believed that these meek would inherit the earth. In 1848, five years before the Crimean War began, he and Friedrich Engels published a communist manifesto which commanded the workers of the world to unite, for they had nothing to lose but their chains. They were part of a rapidly growing socialist movement, but they were not alone in rejecting the new industrial world. It was an age of emotion. The Romantic movement was a reaction against the new industrial society. Romanticism as a movement glorified emotion, individualism, and nature, rejecting the cold, unfeeling approach of modernity and industrialism. It looked to the past for truth and wisdom, drawing on ancient mythology and medieval values, craving the glories of forgotten ages. Romanticism embraced the darkness and mystery of the human spirit, the genuine flaw over the false perfection, the natural beauty over the modern ugliness, the human over the machine. Romanticism came in the poetry of Wordsworth and Pushkin and Byron. It came in the historical novels of Sir Walter Scott, whose Waverly romanticized and idealized Bonnie Prince Charlie and the 45, the romantic past. Scott inspired authors across Europe, and his historical novelization inspired Alexandre Dumas, The Three Musketeers, Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Miklos Hoshika's Abafi. Romanticism came in the later music of Beethoven, who inspired a league of brilliant, passionate young composers like Brahms, Chopin, Liszt, and especially Wagner. And the romantic ideal, the dominance of language and the romanticization of the past, was more than just a literary phenomenon. It was more than like, hey, look at these cool stories. As creative young men and women across Europe looked into their histories, they discovered or rediscovered or invented common identities. Writers like the Grimm brothers in Germany, Adam Mickiewicz in Poland, and Alessandro Manzoni in Italy looked to the past to create visions for the future. They dreamed of a nation. It was an age of nationalism. As people across Europe delved into their collective pasts, they created national identities that threatened the concert of Europe. The Germans and the Italians dreamed of a day when their lands, broken up into multiple states, could be united as one. 
the Czechs, the Poles, the Hungarians, the Ukrainians, the Serbs, yearned to break free from the shackles of empire and establish countries of their own. Like all good romantics, they idealized the past. Like all good revolutionaries, they tried to create a new future. But the nationalists were few, romantically-minded liberals persecuted by the concert of Europe. The few nationalist uprisings were unsuccessful. Austria suppressed the Italians and Prussia suppressed the Germans. Then there was the November Uprising of 1830-31, when Polish revolutionaries, inspired by liberal, nationalist, and romantic ideals, tried to regain the independence of Poland. The Russian army moved in and crushed the Great Polish Uprising, crushed it furiously, sacking Warsaw and removing what few freedoms the Poles had left. Throughout this whole period that I just described, Russia was the most autocratic, conservative, regressive state in Europe. It was barely industrialized, with only a single railroad and very few factories or machines. Russia still ran on a vast peasant economy, the serfs remaining in bondage on their lord's manners. The secret police, the infamous Third Section, exiled troublemakers to the wastes of Siberia. Tsar Nicholas I was the most aggressive, militaristic, and authoritarian ruler in Europe, constantly rattling his saber at any threat of revolution or rebellion. One shout of freedom anywhere on the continent, and Nicholas was ready to march. It was no wonder that liberals and nationalists referred to Tsar Nicholas and Russia as the gendarme of Europe, the concert of Europe's hitman, the eye of Sauron gazing across the continent. So this was Europe in the 19th century. The nobles and aristocrats of the great powers wanted to turn the clock back to 1789 to preserve the old order like a ship in a bottle. But the concert of Europe groaned under the weight of political discontent, industrial pressure, the rise of the working class, the growth of mass media, the ideas of reform and romance and nationalism and revolution. As the French politician and author Alexis de Tocqueville warned them all, I believe that we are at this moment sleeping on a volcano. And then the volcano exploded. 1848 was one of the most important years in European and world history. The Great Revolutionary Year. The initial spark was in France, where a quick, quick revolution overthrew the last Bourbon-descended king and founded another republic. The shockwaves rippled all across Europe. Thanks to the telegraph, everyone heard the news of the new French Revolution in a matter of hours. Soon Rome, Berlin, Copenhagen, Budapest, and Vienna were all in revolt. Barricades went up in the streets, princes were overthrown, armies driven out, new na nations proclaimed. It seemed like the clouds had suddenly broken, the light was streaming into the dark, smoke-covered cities of Europe for the first time anyone could remember. The impossible suddenly seemed possible. Germans met in Frankfurt to draw up a constitution for a unified Germany. Italians began wars of independence to unify Italy. The Poles, the Czechs, the Hungarians, the Romanians launched wars of liberation. The dreams of freedom rang in every European capital. Even Karl Marx was free to spread pamphlets in the German city of Cologne, though very few people read them. Marx was still very unknown. It seemed like the world had turned a corner, that the new age had begun. Then it all came crashing down. The revolutionaries started to argue amongst themselves. Liberals versus socialists, Hungarians versus Germans, reformers versus radicals. And this gave the old order time to get its crap together and bring the hammer down. 
Troops bombarded the city, stormed the streets, took the barricades by the point of the bayonet. A young musician named Richard Wagner barely avoided being killed on the barricades in Saxony. The gutters of Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Milan, and Paris ran red with blood. The Germans and Italians were crushed, the radicals exiled, the liberals repressed. The grand dreams of 1848 disappeared in the smoke and fire of their cities. Only the Hungarians managed to keep up the fight into 1849. The Austrians could not defeat the Hungarian Revolution on their own, so they called in their closest ally, the Gendarme of Europe. The Tsar's Russian army swept into Hungary to save his fellow emperor from the revolution, and they stomped out the final aftershock of 1848. Order had been restored. The Concert of Europe, after a brief interruption, went on playing. Exiles of the revolution fled to Britain and America to live off liberal charities and dream of what might have been. One French exile never got over the experience. The novelist Victor Hugo had been a member of the Second Republic's parliament. He escaped to Britain when his revolution failed, and while in exile, he wrote the novel that has come to symbolize the age of revolution. Though the book was about a different uprising, the failed student's revolution of 1832, Victor Hugo channeled the passion and the glory, the ideals and the tragedies of 1848 into his greatest work. Le Miserable reverberates with the glorious dreams and shattered hopes that were 1848, the European Spring. And guys, this was Europe on the eve of the Crimean War. 1848 was five years away from 1853 when the Crimean War began. This is a, just a step down the road. And everything I've described here today is important background and will come back in our story. Because the Concert of Europe, which had somehow survived the maelstrom of 1848, it kept right on playing, would be shattered by the Crimean War. And this would center on Europe's sixth great power, the sixth power ranger. <laughs> the country that had not been invited to Vienna was not part of the concert, wasn't even considered to be part of the European community. This was the great Islamic empire ruled by a sultan who was just as helpless as anyone else in the tides of the modern world. This was the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe. So, now that we've gotten rolling, guys, it is time to get all these pieces on the board. Let's meet the four major players in the Crimean War. We're going to start with the weakest of the four, the only one that wasn't part of the Concert of Europe, the Ottoman Empire, the sick man. The Ottoman Empire was dying, and everybody knew it. The sultans of the Osmanli dynasty were once a great power. From their capital of Constantinople, conquered from the Byzantine Empire in 1453, they had absorbed most of southeastern Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. The sultans had the most feared army, spearheaded by the elite Janissaries. They wielded a vast navy and a huge treasury. They claimed the title of Caliph, the alleged successor to the Prophet Muhammad as head of the Muslim community. The Ottomans had ruled a glorious, magnificent Islamic empire, one of human civilization's great achievements, from their magnificent capital at Constantinople. 
But empires rise and fall, and by the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire was way down the fall track. No one's sure how the decline started. Some said it was the defeat at Vienna in 1683, where Poland's famous winged hussars shattered the Ottoman army. Some said it was the stagnated economy. Some said the corruption and decadence of the Ottoman bureaucracy or the weakness of the sultans. Maybe even, as some Islamic scholars claimed, the House of Osman had forsaken Islamic law for Western fashions, losing the favor of Allah. But the Ottomans also had to deal with the problems of the 19th century. They had been left out of the Industrial Revolution. The empire possessed not a single railroad, factory, or coal mine, and they ruled a decayed political institution with nothing like modern European administration. Then there was nationalism. The Ottomans ruled a vast territory with 35 million souls, but only 60% of these people were Muslim, less than half of those being Turks, the ruling ethnic group. Around 11 million Ottoman subjects were Christian, mostly in southeastern Europe. The Ottomans tolerated Christianity to a degree, but as the Ottoman decline set in, Muslim leaders and populations lashed out at the empire's Christians with violence, burning churches and attacking minorities, and sometimes the Christians responded in kind. Throughout the 19th century, the Christians, Serbs, Bulgarians, Greeks, and Romanians launched constant rebellions that the empire struggled to contain. Prince Miloš Obrenović of Serbia said, Turkey cannot stand. She is falling of herself. The revolt of her misgoverned provinces will destroy her. And this was pretty much the European opinion. The Ottoman Empire was widely believed to be on the verge of collapse. I mean, from all appearances, yeah, the government was broke, the military was ineffective, it was losing control over its provinces. The famed Janissaries, once the terror of Christian Europe, had become corrupt and useless. When Sultan Mahmud IV finally abolished the Janissaries in the bloody coup of 1826, known to history as the auspicious incident, I did a short round about this back in September, the problem was finding something to replace them. In the 1830s, the Ottomans began a series of reforms called the Tanzimat. This was an attempt to modernize the empire, to bring it up to par with its European competitors. These guys are trying to fix the, the problems. The reformers worked to try and build a modern army, develop European institutions, and repeal old laws that restricted the rights of the Christian minorities. These reforms were usually opposed by conservative Muslims, who resented what they saw as Western influences and the betrayal of Islamic tradition. Local elites, Islamic leaders, and unemployed laborers lashed out against the Tanzimat, especially since the Christians and European immigrants seemed to be the main beneficiaries of these reforms. The reforms that the Sultan hoped would save their empire were opposed by many of their people. And vultures were circling. The European powers looked at the fragile old empire, once the terror of Europe, now seen as something else the sick man of Europe. They knew that sooner or later the old man was going to die. The question was, what happens then? See, this is part of a bigger issue. The, the, the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire in general. The disintegration of the Ottoman Empire is one of the most important events in recent world history of the last few centuries starting from today. Ottoman decline unleashed nationalist and religious forces throughout the ruins of their empire. 
The Sultan had kept order in these regions for centuries, but the, the demise of the Ottoman Empire would leave a power vacuum in southeastern Europe and the Middle East. A power vacuum that is still causing problems, all sorts of problems today, of course, but the power vacuum could also decisively alter the European balance of power and ruin the fragile settlement established at Vienna in 1815. This international issue, throughout the 19th century, all of it, was known in Europe as the Eastern Question. The question being, what happened when the sick man of Europe finally died? What happened when the Ottoman Empire fell? Who was going to get the sick man's stuff? One European power, more than any other, stood to benefit from the Ottoman collapse. Tsarist Russia was a religious state, its foundation and legitimacy resting on the Orthodox Church. Orthodoxy is often forgotten in the West today, but it's the third great branch of Christianity alongside Catholicism and Protestantism. Russians saw themselves as the heirs of the long-lost Byzantine Empire, the birthplace of Orthodoxy. Moscow was the new seat of Orthodox Christianity, the Third Rome, the successor to the ancient Roman Empire. Tsar, after all, is the Russian word for Caesar. But it was also the Romantic Age, and many Russians looked to the past to understand the future. They believed that Russia's divine origins and roots in Orthodoxy gave them a divine mission. The liberation of the 11 million Christians within the Ottoman Empire and the reclaiming of the original Orthodox capital, Constantinople, which the Russians called Tsargrad, the imperial city. These are Russia's glorious ambitions, essentially, on an Orthodox, from an Orthodox understanding. And this was also part of an ideology known as Pan-Slavism, the unification and protection of the Slavs, especially the Orthodox Serbs and Bulgarians, under the holy authority of Moscow. Many Russian nationalists in the Tsar's court saw Pan-Slavism as the Russian destiny. You know, manifest destiny, Eastern edition. Because Russia was growing fast, almost as fast as the United States in territory. Under Catherine the Great, who ruled from 1762 to 1796, Russia pushed its borders steadily south into Ukraine and the Caucasus. The original inhabitants, usually Muslim, were cleared out in campaigns of what is legitimate ethnic cleansing, and Christian colonists were brought in to repopulate the broad stretch of Ukraine called Novorossiya. They founded new cities like Kyrgyzstan, Mariupol, Nikolaev, and Odessa. This is the comparison has been made between Russian colonization of the South and East and American colonization of the West. The final obstacle to Catherine's southern juggernaut was an Ottoman client state called the Crimean Khanate. The Crimean Khanate was, as one might guess, based on the Crimea, an arrow-shaped spit of land jutting into the Black Sea. Is the Crimea going to be important later? I don't know. Look at the title of the episode. <laughs> Its people, the people of the Crimea, were the Crimean Tatars, Muslim descendants of various Eurasian tribal groups. So the population of the Crimea are Muslim Crimean Tatars, and they will be throughout this series. But to Russians, the Crimea was holy ground. On its shores, Prince Vladimir of Kiev, the first Russian prince, had been baptized as an Orthodox Christian by Byzantine priests. When Catherine conquered the Crimea in the 1780s, she ordered a new city built near Vladimir's baptismal site. This city, Sevastopol, 
would be the new base of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, a dagger pointing directly at Constantinople, the heart of the Ottoman Empire. I'm, this is heavy foreshadowing. We're going to spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time in front of Sevastopol in about an episode or two. <laughs> Russia's expansion wasn't just religious or ethnic. It was strategic. One of Russia's foreign policy goals was to have a warm water port, since all Russia's other seaports were frozen over for part of the year. Russian expansion to the Black Sea was considered vital for their future as a great power, and they considered it to be their backyard, as the founding of Sevastopol indicated. Russia as a Black Sea power was, in the eyes of the Tsars, the future of Russia as a world power. Russia always looks to the Black Sea to enhance its world power. But Russia could only make that world power felt, could only access the Mediterranean via the Straits of the Bosporus. Guys, we have, drumroll please, another geographic choke point. <laughs> but the Bosporus is one of history's oldest and most important geographic choke points. And at the center of the Bosporus sat Constantinople. The Russian dream of retaking the imperial city, their Tsargrad, as they called it, was not just religious, not just nationalist, it was strategic. The Russians needed control over the Bosporus, not only because it was their window to the world, but also because it could serve as an invasion route if a foreign power ever wanted to attack their Black Sea frontier. Hint, hint, that's exactly what the European allies are going to do in the Crimean War. These ambitions, dreams, and fears led Russia and the Ottoman Empire into conflict. The Russians and the Ottomans fought no fewer than 12 major wars throughout their history, and Russia won almost all of them. The Crimean War will be an exception. Every Russian victory inched their borders south. Every victory brought them closer to Holy Constantinople and its ancient church of Hagia Sophia. In 1842, the leading Pan-Slav philosopher, Mikhail Pogodin, wrote that, Here it is our purpose, Russian, Slavic, European, Christian. As Russians, we must capture Constantinople for our own security. As Slavs, we must liberate millions of our kinsmen, brothers in faith. As Europeans, we must drive out the Turk. As Orthodox Christians, we must protect the Eastern Church and return to St. Sophia, its ecumenical cross. Pogodin was writing to his Tsar. Tsar Nicholas I, emperor and supreme autocrat of all the Russias, was tall and handsome, stern and somber. Nicholas was a military fanatic, rarely seen out of uniform. He spent his days reviewing troops, designing uniforms, talking to generals. Nicholas slept on a military cot and would never dream of any other bed. Charming and polite in person, he was also despised across Europe as the legendary gendarme of Europe, the villain of liberals and revolutionaries everywhere. Queen Victoria liked him personally, but she had misgivings. He is stern and severe with fixed principles of duty which nothing on earth will make him change. Very clever, I do not think him. His education has been neglected. Politics and military concerns are the only things he takes great interest in. The arts and all softer occupations he is insensible to. But he is sincere, even in his most despotic acts, from a sense that that is the only way to govern. This was Tsar Nicholas I, a pious military autocrat, rational to a degree, but already showing signs of the hereditary Romanov mental illness. 
Nicholas placed the defense of order and orthodoxy as his top priorities, in contrast to the chaos and disorder, as he saw it, of the liberal, secular, revolutionary West. He supported the concert of Europe against the threats of revolution, liberalism, and disorder, but he seemed to grow more religious and more rigid as he aged. By the 1850s, he spoke of little else but his holy mission, the liberation of the Christians of the Ottoman Empire, and the dream of Constantinople. Now, there is a very real question as to whether Nicholas I really believed these things, or whether he was just using them to advance Russian power worldwide. I think lots of people assume that religious, nationalist, and reactionary beliefs tend to be a cover, a cynical ploy to advance an agenda. But the truth is usually both. Nicholas did believe these things, but he also used them to advance the power of his holy empire. The rise of Russian power provoked fear in the rest of Europe, and the European great power that felt most threatened was Great Britain. Now, looking at a map, why would Britain be afraid of Russia? It was an island nation whose power revolved around the Royal Navy, and Russia was a big land power very far away from Britain. But Britain had a worldwide empire that required protection. This worldwide empire was the basis of their power and prosperity, and Russian expansion threatened this empire. The Russian drive to the south, across Asia, was moving slowly but surely through Central Asia and Persia, creeping closer every year, as the British saw it, towards British-ruled India. And guys, we've discussed this before. Way, way back in episode one, Graveyard of Empires. Remember why the British decided to invade Afghanistan? To forestall what they saw as a Russian menace. Britain believed that the Russian advance through Asia posed a direct threat to their empire, to British-ruled India, and they reacted against this threat. British and Russian agents crisscrossed Central Asia and Persia, scheming and plotting against each other, a struggle for control of Asia known as the Great Game. Of course, Britain and Russia were both part of the Concert of Europe, sworn to uphold the European balance of power. But Britain was increasingly worried that Russian growth, Russian growth across the continent of Europe and Asia, was threatening to upset that balance of power. The growing power of Russia seemed to be a dark cloud on the horizon, a threat that had to be dealt with. And as Russia's interests turned south and focused on the Ottoman Empire, British politicians and diplomats got super-duper antsy. See, Britain was also interested in the Ottoman Empire. It was imperialistic, but in a different way. See, the Ottoman Empire was a major market for the manufactured goods churned out from British factories. It had become a major component of the British economy. Some estimates say that as many as half of Britain's manufactured goods were going to various markets in the Ottoman Empire. Russian conquest and domination of the Ottoman Empire might lock Britain out of that market. But the weakness of the Ottoman state and economy was the only reason Britain had achieved this economic dominance. So this was the British dilemma. They had to keep the Ottoman Empire weak, but intact. Not an easy needle to thread. <laughs> so throughout the 19th century, the British Foreign Office invested a bunch of time and energy in keeping the Ottoman Empire alive. Their point man was a diplomat named Stratford Canning, Britain's main representative in Constantinople for over 30 years. Now, Stratford Canning didn't even really like the Turks, but he hated Russia much, much more. Through Stratford, the British tried to guide the Tanzimat reforms in an effort to strengthen the Ottoman Empire, to introduce good, honest, English-style institutions in the classic liberal reformist spirit with just a little dash of white savior complex. 
maybe a couple of Benadryls and some bed rest and a spoonful of Western values would cure the sick man of Europe. But the British didn't just support the Ottomans, they were also mortally terrified of Russia. Britain in the 19th century was obsessed with the Russian threat, downright Russophobic. The Tsar's empire seemed to be the antithesis of Britain, a backwards, repressive, degenerate nation ruled by a tyrant full of illiterate, unwashed rabble. Their thoughts, not mine. The Russian menace was everywhere, in penny dreadful novels and in newspaper headlines. The Tsar's army were stones throw away from Delhi or Constantinople or London at any given minute. Now, all this hysteria was extremely unrealistic. Russia was nowhere near as dangerous or as terrifying as the man on the street believed. But that didn't matter. This feeling was only exacerbated by the revolutions of 1848. Polish and Hungarian refugees had sought shelter in Britain, where they told stories of cruel and heartless Russian oppression. Stories that were usually true. The best propaganda is true. <laughs> the British public, especially the middle class, supported the Polish and Hungarian causes against the Tsar. These were very popular causes in Britain. There were lots of rallies and demonstrations for the Poles and the Hungarians. The plight of Eastern Europeans crushed by the Russian heel was a cause celebre for liberal reformers everywhere. Public opinion in Britain, which mattered more than ever in the Victorian age, was firmly anti-Russian. This played directly into British party politics. The aristocratic conservatives, led by George Hamilton Gordon, the Earl of Aberdeen, the Prime Minister when the Crimean War begins, were all about maintaining the concert of Europe, keeping Britain aloof from the troubles of the continent. But the growing power of the liberal faction, led by Henry Temple Lord Palmerston, supported direct intervention in Europe to stand against the Russian menace, to fight for justice and righteousness against the Eastern tyranny. And thanks to the new power of public opinion and mass media, Palmerston and his allies could rally the reform-minded English middle class to their cause. British fears of Russian power, support for the Ottomans, sympathy for the oppressed peoples of Eastern Europe, all combined to make Britain hostile to Russia. The pressure of public opinion was also felt in France. The French Revolution of 1848 led to the creation of the Second French Republic. But then the Second Republic held its first election for president in 1848. The winner was an awkward little man named Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. Not the original Napoleon. Make that very clear. Not This is not the OG Napoleon. No, this was the great Napoleon's nephew, his brother's son. Louis Napoleon was awkward as heck, not a military guy, did not look like his uncle. He was pale and disproportionate, with short legs, a big torso, a long, dull face, and thick facial hair. No one took him seriously. But that was a mistake. Just because he looked weird, looked foolish, acted kind of dumb, didn't mean he couldn't be dangerous. Because a few years after being elected president, Louis Napoleon launched a coup. And in 1852, he proclaimed himself Napoleon III, the continuation of his uncle's dynasty, the founder of the Second French Empire. Napoleon III has been described as the first truly modern dictator. Unlike the other monarchs of Europe, he gained his throne through his popularity, not by birth or divine right. He used propaganda, mass media, and ideological dogma to secure his rule but this also made him unusually dependent on public opinion. 
His secret police functioned less as a terror squad and more as opinion pollsters. They were gauging what the man on the street was saying and reporting back to the emperor, hey, people don't like this. Hey, people really like this. Napoleon III had gained power via a revolution, and he knew that he could lose it the same way. But Napoleon III's big problem was that he was not his uncle. The real Napoleon was brilliant and charismatic, a military and political genius that left everyone in his shadow, a great leader. But Napoleon III was not any of these things. He had a lot to live up to. Karl Marx has a particularly cutting and famous quote about Napoleon III. Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. The first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. Napoleon I was the tragedy. Napoleon III, the pale imitator, was the farce. Napoleon III's popularity rested on the Bonaparte legacy. It was the whole reason he'd gotten elected in the first place. He used his last name to appeal to French nationalism and romanticism, the yearning for the good old days when France had been a great power. Napoleon's biggest source of support was the French army, whose glory days had been in the service of the OG Napoleon. But Napoleon also needed the support of the most powerful cultural institution in France, the Catholic Church, and this meant promoting Catholic interests abroad. Napoleon made early moves in this direction when he sent troops to support the Pope in Rome against the revolutions of 1848. But this need to shore up his Catholic base would eventually turn Napoleon III's eyes to the Ottoman Empire. He saw an easy route to gain Catholic support by promoting their religious interests in the sick man of Europe. Only months after his seizure of power and his proclaiming of his, the Second French Empire, Napoleon's pandering to the Catholics via foreign policy would spark the crisis that would lead to the Crimean War. See, Napoleon III had one major overriding goal in his foreign policy, to break up the concert of Europe. Napoleon III wanted a revival of French military glory and wars of conquest, which the concert of Europe had been explicitly designed to prevent. This made the Second French Empire what international relations folks call a revisionist power, a power that wants to upset the established order. So Napoleon III's long-term goal was to blow up the Vienna settlement by setting the other great powers against each other, destroying the balance of power so France could make itself great again. The final great power we need to mention is Austria. Austria owed a lot to Russia, especially since Russia had saved them from the Hungarians in 1848. Austria and Russia were supposedly very close allies. But Russian promotion of the pan-Slav cause threatened to stir up Austria's own restive Slavic subjects in Croatia and Serbia. Austria and Russia were long-term allies, but if Russia kept stoking the fires of Slavic nationalism in the Balkans, it could bite Austria as well. Austria had the most to lose if the balance of power, the concert of Europe, fell apart, and they would do everything in their power to maintain it. The Eastern Question, the issue of the sick man of Europe, caused many close calls throughout the 19th century. One of these was the Greek War of Independence, where Ottoman war crimes against Greek civilians provoked the intervention of the Western powers. A combined British, French, and Russian fleet smashed the Ottomans at Navarino in 1827, and Russian armies closed in on Constantinople. They were miles away from the Holy City when peace was declared. 
The peace treaty that settled the Greek War established Greek independence and included major Ottoman concessions to Russia, including recognition of Russia as the protector of all Christians within the Ottoman Empire. This was a major blow to Ottoman sovereignty. Imagine if, say, China forced America to sign a treaty that said China gets to protect all Asian people in America, and if they're mistreated, China can intervene. That would be bonkers, right? Well, this was how weak the Ottoman Empire had become. And it was also establishing Tsar Nicholas's holy mission of protecting the Christians in the Ottoman Empire as he saw it. Another close call came in the 1830s. A major rebellion in Egypt threatened to outright overthrow the Ottoman government. And the British and French refused to help the Ottoman Empire. Like, nope, you guys are on your own. Good luck. The Sultan, who had to have been really freaking desperate, <laughs> turned to Tsar Nicholas I. Russia intervened and saved the Ottoman Sultan from the Egyptians in return for more concessions, a development which spooked the other powers. This was sort of settled when the European powers agreed to the London Straits Convention, which closed the Bosporus to all foreign warships, except the Sultan's allies in time of war. This would keep the Russians from entering the Mediterranean, or the British and French from entering the Black Sea. It made, basically turned it into the Bosporus into a DMZ unless one of them allied with the Sultan. Finally, there was another side effect of 1848. Russia and the Ottoman Empire had joint responsibility for two major buffer states that sat between their empires. These were technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but they had a lot of autonomy and both Russia and the Ottoman Empire helped to administer them. These provinces were Moldavia and Wallachia, the Danubian principalities, two countries that today are part of modern Romania and were full of people calling themselves Romanians. Moldavia sat against the Russian border, its capital at Yasi, and Wallachia sat along the Ottoman border, its capital at Bucharest. Each of these principalities had their own 1848 revolutions that tried to establish a unified Romanian state, like Moldavia and Wallachia, like, hey, we should join together and create Romania. But Russia, the gendarme of Europe, had crushed these revolutions. Many exiles of 1848, including Poles, Hungarians, and Romanians, had fled to the Ottoman Empire, which roused the, made the Tsar very mad. The Tsar was like, hey, Ottoman Empire, hand over those revolutionary criminals. And the Sultan said no, <laughs> which was a major blow to Russian-Ottoman relations just before the Crimean War. The Danubian principalities were the fault line between Christianity and Islam, between the Russians and the Ottomans, and it would be here that the Crimean War's first shots were fired. So those are your four great powers, and those are all the major events leading up to the crisis that would cause the Crimean War. The growth of Russian influence in the Ottoman Empire threatened the European balance of power. The Concert of Europe had worked hard to keep this balance for almost 40 years, but what would happen if or when the Ottoman Empire fell, if Russia was the one to benefit? Would that throw off the balance and unleash the chaos they had all worked so hard to prevent? The European powers, Britain, France, Austria, and Russia, all kept a very close, wary eye on the sick man of Europe. So you see, guys, all the great powers had major security concerns, major ambitions, major interests. None of them really wanted a war. But if push came to shove, they might feel like they had no choice. The Crimean War was entirely preventable, but the great powers would all make mistakes and errors of judgment that heightened the tension and escalate when they could have backed down. 
Fear and insecurity, more than any other force, drove Europe to war. Concert of Europe or not, the fragile peace was about to collapse. The rise of Russian power, the weakness of the Ottoman Empire, the fear this situation invoked in Britain and Austria, and the ambitions of French Emperor Napoleon III were an explosive combination. All it would take was a spark. And the spark was a key to a church in Jerusalem. War is inherently risky. It's unpredictable, full of surprises, usually bad ones. Very few countries who start a war gain the desired outcome. Very few. So believe it or not, wars are not usually the desired outcome of foreign policy. Lots of times war happens because countries and leaders bluff, posture, threaten to get the things they want. They escalate a volatile situation to convince someone else to back off, producing a beneficial result and risking war to seek a more favorable peace. But danger comes when both sides escalate and neither side backs down. War is what happens when a country feels, rightfully or not, that it has no other choice. None of the Crimean War's participants wanted a war. They wanted to achieve their objectives without war. But they played this game, right? They bullied, they bluffed, they made threats and demands and ultimatums. They escalated the situation. But when someone's bluff was called, would they fold or double down? Would they scare another country into lashing out like a cornered animal? June 1st, 1844. A tall, balding man with clipped sideburns and a smart military mustache stepped off a steamer in Woolwich, England. Tsar Nicholas I had come to Great Britain for a surprise visit. His public intentions were mostly benign. Charm English public opinion, forge new relationships, meet the 26-year-old very pregnant Queen Victoria for the first time, and avoid all those Polish protesters that kept popping up wherever he went. But the Tsar had come for one big reason. To discuss the Eastern question and maybe, just maybe, get Britain on his side because Nicholas believed that the time was right for the Ottoman Empire to die. He had been bopping across Europe, looking for another great power to join him in carving up the turkey. <laughs> turkey. Carved. He had already approached Austria, but they were afraid that this would throw off the balance of power and threaten the concert of Europe. So they said, nah, nah, we're not doing that. Nicholas figured, hey, Britain loves empire. They'll help me out. Plus, at the moment, the conservatives were in power, and the Russophobic liberals were out of power. So this was Tsar Nicholas's chance to win the Brits over. He laid out his thoughts to Queen Victoria's ministers. Turkey is a dying man. We may endeavor to keep him alive, but we shall not succeed. He will, he must, die. That will be a critical moment. I shall have to put my armies into motion. Austria must do the same. A major conflagration would become unavoidable. Nicholas basically said, Look dudes, old man's about to bite the dust. Let's go ahead and divide up his stuff now, before it catches us all by surprise and a fight starts. I can't do it alone. I need another great power on my side or it'll blow up the concert of Europe. And the British response was pretty much, 
look, we get it, we're on board in theory, but A, we don't think the Ottoman Empire's doomed, and B, even if they are, it's pretty ghoulish to be dividing up his furniture while he's still alive. Sick man ain't dead yet. We agree in principle, sure, but not yet. But Nicholas was convinced that he and the British had an understanding. He went home with a memo that laid out the general principles they'd agreed to in the meeting, but with no guarantees. But he made two major miscalculations. First, Britain wasn't like Russia. They weren't an absolute monarchy. Agreement with one political party was pointless since they wouldn't always be in power. Second, Nicholas forgot one of the biggest rules of diplomacy, heck, life. Always get it in writing. An unwritten understanding is worth less than the paper it wasn't printed on. The memo the Tsar had was just general, in principle we agree, it laid out nothing in particular. But the Tsar's visit also put Britain on alert. The way he was talking, it didn't sound like the Ottoman Empire would die a natural death. It sounded like Nicholas was looking for an excuse to kill it. Throughout the 19th century, a growing flood of Christians had come through the gates of an ancient city. For centuries, Jerusalem had been a backwater, poor, grubby, and isolated from the world. But the miracles of the Industrial Revolution, railways and steamboats and telegraphs, had made travel cheaper and quicker than ever before. Now even a modest European or American traveler could visit the holiest of holies. They came in droves from England, America, France, Italy, but most of all, Russia. This sudden influx of pilgrims to Jerusalem starting in the 1820s and 1830s supercharged old religious divides. The vast majority of the Christian visitors were Orthodox, the majority Christian population of the Ottoman Empire and the Russian National Church. But the sudden uptick in French Catholics had raised tensions between the two denominations. The local Ottoman governor had to send troops into Jerusalem's churches multiple times to break up fights. In 1846, the Latin and Greek churches got into a dispute over who had first dibs on ceremonies in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built on the alleged site of Christ's crucifixion. The priests, soon joined by pilgrims and monks from both sides, attacked each other with candlesticks, crucifixes, and pieces of the destroyed sacred shrines until Ottoman troops broke in and separated the warring sides. Forty dead lay on the floor of the Holy Sepulchre makes a modern religious debate look downright benign. The memory of this church service slash tavern brawl was still fresh when another argument started in 1851. This time the issue was a key. A key to the Church of the Nativity built on the site of Jesus' birth. The Orthodox had maintained the church for centuries. They had been keeping it to up, you know, keeping it updated, keeping it clean. But the newly arrived Catholics wanted their own key, as well as the right to place small monuments inside the shrine. This minor slap fight over the key to a church would be the spark. Yes, seriously, the key to the conflict was a key. This key would start the Crimean War, but not really. Because the inciting incident of this entire war I will talk about for five episodes was the key to a church in Palestine, hundreds of miles away from where any of the fighting was going to take place. The key would never even really come up again. Everyone would forget about it, like a couple months after the crisis started. Because this wasn't really about a key, or even really about religion. It was about power and influence, ambition and insecurity, about leaders trying to keep the balance of power, or find opportunity in chaos. The key was the occasion, but not the cause of the war. It never would have been a big deal 
if someone hadn't decided to make it a big deal. And that someone was Napoleon III of France, who took a sudden and unusual interest in this key. Napoleon needed Catholic support to strengthen his hold on power, and the dispute seemed like an easy win. So all of a sudden, Napoleon III was like, hey, Ottoman Empire, you better give my fellow Catholics the rights they deserve. To which the Ottoman Empire was understandably like, what, dude, is this about the key thing? Are you serious? Now, Napoleon couldn't give a rip about religion himself, least religious person you'd ever meet. He didn't even really understand what the dispute was about, but he knew better than to let a good crisis go to waste. Napoleon III was the first actor to escalate the crisis that led to the Crimean War, and he did this by appointing a new ambassador to Constantinople, the hardcore Catholic Charles de la Vallette. Because there's no better way to escalate an international situation than to send a hot-headed diplomat with a chip on his shoulder. La Valette was bullying the Ottoman Empire from the word go as soon as he arrived in Constantinople. He bragged about French military might and warned of dire consequences if the Sultan didn't back Catholic privileges in the holy places. And La Valette's aggressive language agitated the Russians. Tsar Nicholas I was furious when he heard about all the shenanigans going on in Constantinople. He not so gently reminded Sultan Abdul Majid I that, hey buddy, you better remember one thing. Russia, not France, is the protector of the Ottoman Empire's Christians, and the Orthodox, not the Catholics, have pride of place in Jerusalem. Imagine the poor Ottomans being like, can, can y'all just like leave us alone? Is this really that important? But Sultan Abdul Majid knew that France might be a problem, but Russia was the problem for centuries and remained the biggest problem. So he refused to accede to Napoleon III's demands. So Napoleon III escalated again, this time by sending the warship Charlemagne, a modern steam-powered battleship, to the Bosporus. When the Charlemagne arrived outside Constantinople, not only was this an obvious threat, it was a violation of the London Convention guaranteeing neutrality of the Straits, a major escalation. But now the Sultan's back was against the wall. In November 1852, he issued a proclamation giving the Catholics keys to the Church of the Nativity along with a bunch of other concessions. The church key had changed hands, the keys moving over, but more importantly, France was transgressing on the turf of Holy Russia. And this was on purpose. Napoleon III was going out of his way to piss off Tsar Nicholas I. He was trying to force the holy place as issue to promote his long-term goal, to break up the consort of Europe. Napoleon was convinced that if he could make this seem like a Catholic-Orthodox dispute, he could split Catholic Austria and Orthodox Russia apart. This would also force Britain to pick a side, and Napoleon knew which side they would pick. And Russia and Tsar Nicholas played right into his hands. Because the Tsar went berserk when he learned the Sultan had caved into French pressure. The British ambassador in St. Petersburg, Lord Seymour, got an earful from the agitated Tsar. We have a sick man on our hands, a man gravely ill. It will be a great misfortune if he slips through our hands, especially before the necessary arrangements are made. Guys, we have a title drop. Nicholas implied that the time had finally come for the Ottoman Empire to die, before France could worm its way into the Sultan's court. Hey, so Britain, remember our deal? Sick man is gonna die, let's figure out who gets his stuff. 
but the British government rejected Russia's demands. When the Tsar insisted that, hey, we had a deal, the British said, look, man, we agreed to nothing, and we definitely didn't agree to you taking the Ottoman Empire apart like a Lego set. Tsar Nicholas and the Russians felt like the whole West was unifying against them, and this only made them more determined to impose their will on the Sultan. Nicholas was infuriated by the West's hypocrisy. What? England could go a-conquering in India, France and Algeria, but Russia couldn't clean up its own backyard? Sound familiar? Nicholas believed that the West bore irrational fear and hatred of Russia, misunderstood Russia's holy mission to protect the Orthodox, and downplayed its security concerns over the Black Sea, Russia's only entrance to the outside world. He had to make the West understand that he was serious. Though, so the Tsar escalated. He ordered tens of thousands of Russian troops to assemble near the Danubian principalities, Moldavia and Wallachia. He also ordered his admirals to make plans for a lightning strike on Constantinople, a four-day voyage from the Black Sea Fleet's naval base at Sevastopol. People at the Tsar's court talked openly of destroying the Ottoman Empire, retaking the holy city of Byzantium, freeing the Orthodox, maybe even sending their armies all the way to Jerusalem. Granted, most of this was just talk. Tsar Nicholas had no intention of going to war. Not yet. He just wanted the Ottomans to acknowledge Russia's protection of the Orthodox Christians within their empire, which really meant that acknowledging Russia, not France, was daddy. The government of Lord Aberdeen, Queen Victoria's Prime Minister, watched these events with horror. The prospect of either France or Russia dominating the Ottoman Empire was enough to give them heartburn. They were furious with the French for starting this whole kerfluffle, and with the Tsar for also making everything worse. But the British had to convince the Ottomans to stand firm against both sides, and maybe convince the Russians to back down. So they escalated. They decided to send Stratford Canning, first Viscount de Redcliffe, famous across Europe for his hatred of Russia, Britain's main Turkish diplomat, to Constantinople to make, make sure the Ottomans stood firm and give them encouragement to stand up against foreign pressure by applying foreign pressure. Because there's no better way to es escalate an international situation than to send a hot-headed diplomat with a chip on his shoulder. Again, Nicholas was not looking for war. All his moves so far had been a bluff, a way to get what he wanted without a war. The Tsar believed that with enough pressure, the Ottomans would restore Russia to its rightful place as guardian of the empire's Christians. So he decided to send his own ambassador, a hot-headed diplomat with a chip on his shoulder. This is going great, right? Prince Alexander Menshikov was 65 years old, a war veteran who had gotten his genitals shot off during a previous war against the Ottomans. So you can imagine his attitude towards the Ottoman Empire. Menshikov arrived in Constantinople in February 1853, and from day one he was rude, insulting, and openly aggressive. He carried demands from the Tsar. The Sultan would reverse his policy giving France treaty rights in the holy places. He would restore the Orthodox Church to its privileged place in the empire and acknowledge the Tsar's exclusive right to protect the empire's Christians. The Ottomans looked at Menshikov's behavior, looked at the Russian army gathering to the north, and the Ottomans escalated. They sent messages to the British and French begging them, hey, send a fleet to protect Constantinople. The, the Russians are going to attack us any minute now. Look at them. They're, 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 they're massing their forces. 
Now it was pretty sad this is what the Ottomans were reduced to. They needed one European power or two to fight off another European power. They were being pulled between these countries, forced to rely on one to defend them from the other. But keep in mind guys, the Ottomans have agency too, even if they felt like they were being pulled back and forth. Threatened by the Russians, bullied by the French, egged on by the British, especially Stratford Canning, who assured them that Britain stood behind them. They were trying to figure out the best way to keep the empire alive and independent, even if it meant choosing the lesser of two evils. Yeah, the British might have been perfidious infidels that wanted to rob them blind, but at least they didn't want to break them apart like a Kit Kat bar. So negotiations continued throughout March and April 1853, and Menshikov got impatient. On May 5th, he gave the Ottomans an ultimatum. They had five days to sign a pre-written agreement before Russia broke off diplomatic relations. The Ottomans, encouraged by Stratford Canning, refused. Menshikov knew the Tsar wanted to avoid war, so he gave them more time. And they still refused. Menshikov threw up his hands, said, screw you guys, I'm going home, and left Constantinople on May 21st. We will see Menshikov again because he's going to be the main Russian general in the Crimea. Diplomacy had failed. The Tsar decided to use force. On June 24th, 1853, Tsar Nicholas ordered his troops into the Danubian principalities, into the buffer states, right up to the Ottoman border on the Danube River. This was the biggest and most dangerous escalation so far. The principalities were technically under Ottoman sovereignty. This was... But this was not an invasion. Think of it as, I don't know, a special military operation. So this wasn't war. Yet. The occupying soldiers marched south, 80,000 strong, over the dirt roads into the heart of what is now Romania, through Bucharest, towards Constantinople. On the way, they handed out copies of the Tsar's message, informing the Romanians that this was only a temporary occupation to place pressure against the Ottoman government. We are ready to stop our troops if the Ottoman Empire guarantees the inviolable rights of the Orthodox Church. But if it continues to resist, then, with God on our side, we shall advance and fight for our true faith. Nicholas did not expect the other European powers to butt in. After all, this was none of their business. But he had underestimated Europe's unity and the fear his aggressive act would generate. Austria and Prussia mobilized their armies. The British and French both put their fleets on a war footing. The French even sent their fleet, in, in compliance with the Ottoman request, to stand by outside the Bosporus. The British government, led by the anti-war and isolationist Lord Aberdeen, wanted to de-escalate the situation, but the French essentially forced their hand. In June, the British fleet joined the French outside the Straits of Constantinople. Russian armies in Romania, Allied fleets just outside the Straits. War seemed imminent. Austria, more than any other power, was determined to make the concert of Europe work. Emperor Franz Josef was in debt to Russia for bailing him out in 1848, but Russia was already making noise about rallying the Slavic minorities to overthrow the Sultan. Russia had always opposed nationalism and revolution that had been their thing. They were the gendarme of Europe, but here they were openly supporting them betraying their principles to pwn the Turks. Problem being that those things had a way of spreading. Any rise in Balkan nationalism encouraged Balkan nationalism all across Europe, which was the big thing they did not want. And, they, and it also endangered Austria's rule over its own Slavic minorities. So rallied by Austria, the Consort of Europe tried to do what it had been designed to do, 
solve the issue through diplomacy. The great powers proposed, counterproposed, and haggled with messages traveling faster than ever via the new technology of the telegraph. What emerged on July 28th was a peace proposition drafted by diplomats from Britain, France, Austria, and Prussia together in Vienna. The Vienna Note, as it was called, offered a return to the status quo. Russia would withdraw from Wallachia and Moldavia, and the Ottomans would recognize Russia's right to protect the Christians within their empire. Neither France nor Russia would get anything new out of the deal, but war would be averted. And Tsar Nicholas said, shoot guys, that's all you had to say. This was a deal that could allow him to save face and de-escalate with his dignity intact. So the Tsar agreed to accept the Vienna Note on August 5th, 1853. The Europeans said, ooh, awesome, war's averted. Good job, everybody. But there was someone they had forgotten to ask. The Ottomans hadn't even been consulted in the drafting of the Vienna Note. But when they received it, they said, we have questions. Sultan Abdulmajid I kicked the Vienna Note back with a couple of minor changes, including the guarantee from the Consort of Europe that the Ottoman Empire's sovereignty would be respected. The Ottomans were basically saying, hey, we are more than just the European dueling field, the arena where you settle your scores. You keep calling us the sick man of Europe, and maybe we will die, but we are not dead yet. And we still have some say over what happens to us. So when the Ottoman version of the Vienna Note made its way to the Tsar, he rejected it. Ottoman sovereignty was the exact opposite of what he wanted. The Vienna Note was dead. Threats had failed. Negotiations had failed. Demands had failed. International action, mediation, compromise had failed. But who would pull the trigger? Who would make the final escalation to war? The deciding factor wasn't the influence of statesmen or diplomats, kings or emperors or sultans. It was the force of public opinion. The Ottoman Empire had not been immune to the changes of the 19th century. As Western influence seeped into the sick man of Europe, the Sultan's Muslim subjects rallied in opposition to foreign manipulation. They took to the streets in protest against the foreign threat to the empire and Islam. The most radical were the religious students of the Madrasi, who demanded that the Sultan stand up to the Russians and fight for the integrity of the empire and the laws of Muhammad. They carried placards demanding that the Sultan declare a jihad. O oh, glorious Padishah, all your subjects are ready to sacrifice their lives, property, and children for the sake of your majesty. You too have now incurred the duty of unsheathing the sword of Muhammad, with which you girded yourself in the mosque of Ayubai Ansari, like your grandfathers and predecessors. Therefore, your victorious soldiers and your praying servants want war for the defense of their clear rights, O oh, my Padishah. No country likes to feel that its destiny is in the hands of another. In a time of crisis, when the Western powers debated the fate of the empire like the empire didn't have a say in it, the empire's people demanded action. Better a war for their sovereignty instead of surrender. If the sick man was going to die, better to go out with a bang than a whimper. The popular unrest alarmed the Sultan and his ministers. They were constantly petitioned by devout Muslims who insisted that the empire confront the infidel for the defense of Islam. Soon the Ottomans began to worry that if they didn't declare war, they might face an internal revolution. They asked the British and French ambassadors to be ready to bring in the Western navies if the situation in the capital got out of hand. 
the Ottomans were suddenly in the same position as Europe had been back in 1848, worried enough about their own people that they were willing to call in outside help to put down a revolution. The Austrians might have said, yeah, sucks, doesn't it? On September 27th, 1853, a grand council of Ottoman ministers met to make a final decision. One minister began by asking why they had not declared war when their territories, the Danubian principalities, had been invaded. Rashid Pasha, the foreign minister, said, Guys, you haven't noticed, our military is in pretty rough shape. Then the Islamic religious leaders, the ulema, said, Hey, so if we do declare war, will Britain or France be on our side? Can we expect help from the powers? Rashid Pasha said, Well, I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe they'll let us get stomped. Then they asked the army minister, Hey, is the military ready for war? He said, Uh, mm, Russia's pretty big guys and we don't have a lot of money. (laughs) The ulema jeered at him saying that he was a coward for not giving a straight answer. But the answer was obvious to everyone. The Ottoman Empire was not strong enough to fight Russia on its own. Past events had demonstrated that. They would need help. So if they went to war as the mob demanded and the British and French didn't join them, they were kind of screwed. But Rashid Pasha said, look guys, We don't have a choice at this point. Even if the West doesn't help us, even if our own people don't overthrow us, if we don't stand up to Russia now, next time it'll be too late. It is better to die with arms in hand than to die with tied hands. God willing, we will be victorious and destroy the harmful treaties as well. The Ottomans were cornered. They felt like their back was to the wall. They had no other choice. Under the terms of the Vienna Note, the Ottoman Empire would cease to have any control over its future. The Russians had rejected any changes to the note that guaranteed Ottoman sovereignty. Their people were demanding a jihad. If the Ottoman Empire didn't stand up to someone at some point, even if they weren't ready for war on a basic level, well, what would the future look like? So the ministers made their decision. On October 4th, 1853, The Ottoman Empire declared that Russia had a period of 15 days to begin evacuating the Nubian principalities. On October 10th, Russia rejected the ultimatum, and hostilities commenced. The Sheikh al-Islam, the religious head of the Muslims in Constantinople, issued a fatwa sanctioning a holy war, a jihad. The sick man of Europe had decided that if he was going to die, he was going to die fighting. Although no one was calling it that yet, the Crimean War had begun. With the rejection of the Ottoman ultimatum, The Crimean War had officially begun. Although it wasn't the Crimean War yet, no one was calling it that yet. There was no reason to. Not a single foreign soldier would even set foot on the Crimean Peninsula in 1853. It would be almost a year before the war went to the Crimea. Right now, this was just another round of Russo-Turkish Wars, like Russo-Turkish War number seven or eight. And like all the Russo-Turkish Wars, there were three battlefronts. They were number one, the Danube River Front, roughly the border between modern-day Romania and Bulgaria. Number two, the Black Sea itself. And number three, the Caucasus, the mountainous border zone around modern Georgia and Armenia. 
The Ottomans and Russians both had armies assembling on the Danube and in the Caucasus, and the Russian Black Sea Fleet was based in Sevastopol, facing the Ottoman fleet at Constantinople. Those those, those little pieces on the board. Now, I am going to talk much more about all these armies next week. This week, my focus is how did the war begin? Next week, the focus will be what were these armies like and how did they fight? So if there's a little less details on the armies in this episode, don't you guys worry, it is coming. So the Ottomans declared war on the Russians, and not much happened right off the bat. The Russian army sat in Wallachia on the north side of the Danube, and the Ottoman army sat in Bulgaria on the south side of the Danube. The Crimean War started as a phony war, a staring contest. I declare war, and then they just sat and watch each other. Both Russia and the Ottoman Empire were still waiting to see what Britain, France, and Austria would do. Yeah, Prussia was great power number five, but they basically had nothing to do with this war. They were on the couch eating popcorn and yelling at the TV. Like me watching one of those athletic shows like American Gladiator or something, where they fail to grab like this crazy rod 30 feet in the air. I'm like, wow, you suck knowing that I can't do that. So when the Russians learned that the war had been declared, many of them were ready for it. Like, yeah, bring it. Let's do this thing. Tsar Nicholas was eager to destroy the Ottoman Empire. It was his overriding goal. But he still wanted to see if this thing could be resolved without escalating the war. And, of course, you have the British and French fleets still sitting outside the Bosporus waiting to enter the Black Sea. That was always in his mind. How do I keep the other European powers out of this? So he decided to let the war simmer and not turn up the heat just yet. See if he could place pressure on the Turks and get them to back down, even after the declaration of war, and agree to his terms. The Russian Black Sea Fleet was ordered to go on patrol and smack down any Turkish navy leaving the Bosporus. They were to ignore any British or French ships unless they opened hostilities first. And as the Black Sea Fleet patrolled the waves, the Ottomans and Russians stared each other down on the Danube. The Ottoman army on the Danube was led by their best general of the Crimean War. Omer Pasha, as the Turks called him, had been born as Michael Latus, an Orthodox Serb and a citizen of the Austrian Empire. After being accused of embezzlement, Latus had fled to the Ottoman Empire and managed to gain a rank in the newly forming Turkish army. He converted to Islam and took Omer as his new Muslim name. Omer Pasha rose rapidly mainly because he was pretty darn competent, alongside many other European exiles, including Polish, Hungarian, and Romanian officers, who had joined the Ottoman army in order to fight against the gendarme of Europe. Lots of Europeans, and even a few Americans, held officer rank in the Turkish army throughout the Crimean War. Omer had commanded the Ottoman army in the Balkans for years, and he had been in charge of suppressing rebellions and keeping a lid on things here for a while now. He was slim and thickly bearded, pleasant and chatty, always in a fancy uniform and accompanied by his own orchestra, which played Italian operas. Ottoman generals had always been big fans of pomp and circumstance, and Omer Pasha, Christian origins or no, played the role to a T. He even had a private harem that he kept in his military camp. It's good to be the Pasha. So Omer Pasha was building up his forces on the Danube, fully aware that he and his army were all that stood between the Tsar's minions and the holy city of Constantinople. Omer's army was composed of the best Ottoman troops, the elite Imperial Guard regiments, and the Egyptian line infantry, so he wasn't willing to just sit and wait. When the Russians didn't move, he decided to pop him in the nose a little bit, strike the first blow, see what the Russians would do. On October 29th, 
10,000 Turkish troops crossed the Danube and seized the small Romanian town of Caliphat. A few days later, Omer sent 10,000 more across the river near Bucharest and occupied another town in Oltenitsa, trying to get a response out of the Russian invaders, like, move your pawn forward. Okay, your move. It worked. The Russians came out fighting, running headlong into the defensive positions at Oltenitsa on November 4th, 1853. Their 16 cannons fired at the Ottoman positions for two hours before eight battalions of infantry stormed forward in dense columns, around 5,000 strong. This crude, uninspired tactic was the work of General Peter Dannenberg, who would bungle a much bigger battle in just over a year. This is the Battle of Inkerman, but we'll get to that. But these were pretty typical Russian tactics, just form a column of men and just try to slam them into the defenses. But the Ottoman musket and cannon fire easily drove off the Russian attack. The Russians left 970 men dead and wounded on the muddy floodplains of the Danube. This was not a huge battle, and Omer Pasha abandoned the Oltenitsa bridgehead later on in the month, but the Ottomans had won the first battle of the Crimean War. Small and strategically irrelevant as it was, it boosted the Ottoman will to fight. Other small skirmishes on the Danube occurred throughout November and December, and one sizable battle at Caliphate on January 6, 1854, where the Ottomans defeated yet another Russian assault on their bridgehead. This time the Russian losses were even greater because they're still trying to slam battalions down the Ottoman throat, like crude, uninspired tactics and getting slaughtered. And this time the Ottomans actually held on to their bridgehead. Omer Pasha's campaigns in the Danube were a combination of good reconnaissance, good intelligence, and good command. They were remarkably effective, a series of medium-sized raids and thrusts that put the Russians on notice. The sick man was not as sick as he looked. While the Danube fighting was going on, another front had opened in the Caucasus, where Georgia and Turkey border each other today. The Caucasus Front was a vast, bleak area, populated mostly by Orthodox Georgians and Armenians who tended to cooperate with their Russian religious cohorts. A few weeks after the war began in October 1853, the Ottomans launched a large-scale attack into the modern territory of Georgia. They started the war with a quick victory by capturing Fort St. Nicholas on the Black Sea coast, and then selling all the captive civilians into slavery because this is the Ottoman Empire and slavery is still legal, just in case you like these guys a little bit too much. The Ottomans and Russians fought several battles in the Caucasus before winter, each side enjoying successes and suffering setbacks. All these battles were bloody and nasty and none of them were decisive. The Russians lost 20% of their army in a terrible massacre outside Alexandropol. But then on December 1st, 1853, the Turkish army was routed at a massive battle at Bashgedi Kler, where they lost 6,000 men out of 36,000, and almost half the remaining army deserted. But the Russians didn't follow up the attack, and the Caucasus front went back to square one. Very little changed. We will come back to the Caucasus later in this series, just keep your back of your head, a little, little folder in the back of your head that there is fighting going on down here in the mountains near Armenia and Georgia throughout the entire Crimean War. We'll check in on these guys in a couple of episodes. So for all their fear of the vast Russian menace, the Ottomans had held their own on both the Danube and Caucasus fronts. By the end of 1853, the Russians controlled no major Ottoman territories and the Turk was fighting back. If they were about to bow to Tsar Nicholas's demands, they weren't acting like it. It was time to show the weaker power that they could not win this war. It was time to up the ante. 
As Russia and the Ottoman Empire shot rubber bands at each other from across the Danube, the other European powers were looking for a way, even now, to keep this thing from really blowing up. The Austrians in particular were working overtime to find a diplomatic solution to keep the concert of Europe together, to fix the balance of power that had lasted for almost 40 years. They're like, come on guys, guys, <laughs> no one wants to blow up the concert of Europe, right? Napoleon III raises his hand, I want to blow up the concert of Europe. You don't count. So, but in the meantime, Britain and France had made a subtle but important escalation. In late October, they moved their fleets into the Bosporus and weighed anchor just outside Constantinople. Now, for the first time, the Allied fleet was at the gates of the Black Sea, the Russian backyard. This was meant to be a warning against further Russian escalation and a safeguard to prevent the Russians from making like a sudden descent on Constantinople. The Ottomans wanted the Western powers to intervene directly, hoping that pressure from them would force the Russians to back down and sue for peace. Even now, even now, neither side was committed to war, even though the war shooting had started. Both sides were trying to ratchet things up and force the other side to de-escalate. The Sultan and the Tsar kept poking each other harder and harder, trying to get the other to back off. They kept escalating until it was too late. To sustain the war effort, the Ottomans needed to send supplies to their troops in the Caucasus. Problem was, this meant sending their fleets into the Black Sea, knowing the Russian Black Sea fleet was on patrol and liable to attack any force they called out in the open. But okay guys, let's make a quick supply run. Just zip back and forth real quick, maybe the Russians won't notice. But the Russians noticed. The Russian Admiral Pavel Nakimov, commander of the Black Sea Fleet, was keeping a wary eye on the horizon when he spotted a small Ottoman squadron. Seven frigates, three corvettes, one steam frigate, one small steamer, and four transports. The commander of the Ottoman fleet, Osman Pasha, was making a supply run to the Caucasus. When he ran into a storm, he ordered the Turkish fleet to take shelter in the port of Sinope on Turkey's northern coast. The Ottoman fleet was extremely vulnerable. Drawn up outside the Turkish seaport, the ships were precariously exposed, within easy range of the Black Sea fleet's base at Sevastopol. Osman Pasha was an experienced admiral, but his squadron was far from the best the empire had to offer. His dispositions were careless, and he failed to position his vessels where they could fire most effectively. Nakimov knew this was a golden opportunity to deal a severe blow to the Ottoman navy. On November 30th, 1854, Admiral Nakimov approached Sinope with the Black Sea Fleet, six modern battleships, two frigates, and three steamers. Though the Ottoman ships and shore batteries outnumbered his vessels in raw numbers of cannon, Nakimov's guns were bigger and better maintained. They were also loaded with a surprise. A new type of explosive shell, a delayed reaction projectile that would penetrate into a wooden vessel before exploding. This was a major advance in naval technology, a big movement towards modern naval artillery as used in the world wars. And in many cases, it made most wooden warships across the world obsolete as soon as it appeared. From this point on, in the Crimean War, ships will start to be armored. Nakimov's modern ships, the pride of the Tsar's military, homed in on the Ottoman vessels anchored at Sinope. They anchored 900 meters away from the Turkish vessels and opened fire. The Ottomans returned their fire as best they could, but they never stood a chance. 
One British officer, Adolphus Slade, was serving with the Ottoman squadron at the Battle of Sinope. In one hour, or one hour and a half, the action had virtually ceased. Half the crews of the Turkish ships were slain. Their guns were mostly dismounted and their sides literally beaten in by the number and weight of the enemy's shot. The Russians cheered for they had obtained the objective for which they had come into the bay, the destruction of the Turkish squadron. But then the Russians kept firing, trying to silence the shore batteries within in the fortifications of Sinope. And their shells crashed into the city, blowing through houses, sending civilians running. The city of Sinope burned with the wrath of the Tsar, and since the governor and his ministers had fled when the firing began, no one stayed behind to organize the emergency. Much of the city burned, and an unknown number of civilians died in what became known as the Massacre of Sinope. Only one Turkish ship escaped with Adolphus Slade on board to bring the news to Constantinople. The Russians saw Sinope as a great triumph, a vindication of their naval power in the Black Sea. The Russian navy had been the red-headed stepchild of the Russian armed forces, but here, at Sinope, it had a battle honor to crown its name. Tsar Nicholas was delighted. The Russians held balls and parades to honor the great victory at Sinope. In truth, the victory wasn't very impressive. Russian naval technology and numbers have been the deciding factor, but you know what? You take what you can get. A win is a win. The Allies had a different reaction to the so-called Massacre of Sinope. Now guys, this was no Pearl Harbor, no 9-11. Russia and the Ottomans were already at war. The attack on Sinope was not underhanded, a surprise, or a violation of international law. It was one fleet attacking another fleet. The collateral damage to the civilians of Sinope was certainly barbarous, but it was definitely no worse than most battles of the 18th or 19th century. Any city under siege in those days had suffered this much and more. The British had done worse in India, the French had done worse in Algeria. So the Battle of Sinope was not really out of the ordinary for 19th century warfare. Unless you read the European newspapers. To them, Sinope was the crime of the century, the perfidy of the Tsar, the great crime of the Russian military, a war crime, a slaughter, an act of barbarity. Citizens in France and Britain saw Sinope as an unjustified act of aggression, the degenerate act of a bully, one final crime of the gendarme of Europe. They began to demand war with Russia. This was probably not what Tsar Nicholas I intended. He had meant to ratchet up the pressure on the Ottoman Empire. One more escalation to get Turkey to back down. But the Sinope attack was one escalation too far because it brought other powers into the war. It was Tsar Nicholas I's most dangerous and most costly miscalculation. So as 1853 turned to 1854, Europe stood on the tipping point. The governments of Britain and France had to make a decision. War or peace, which would it be? And who would really be making the call? Because Britain and France, more than any other country in Europe, were dependent on public opinion and interest groups. The British government, the closest thing to a liberal democracy that Europe had, was an elected body at the mercy of at least some of their people, especially the middle classes. And the French Emperor, Napoleon III, only held his position through the support of his people and a number of powerful interest groups. So as the news of the massacre of Sinope spread to London and Paris, the governments were being pushed into war. For the French, 
there was only one opinion that was supposed to matter. Napoleon's. Napoleon III himself was not really into the war. He had been happy to rile up the Tsar, but war was another matter entirely. But Napoleon was adrift on the seas of public opinion. He was still very shaky on his throne. It was only a year old, after all. He was aware that he had come to power in a coup, and also aware that he could lose it the same way. To consolidate his power in France, Napoleon felt that he had to find a way to triangulate three major political factions. The Liberals, the Catholic Church, and the Army. To heal the wounds that had been opened in the French Revolution of 1848. And all three of these factions supported war for different reasons. The Liberals might have hated Napoleon and his coup and his new dictatorship, but they saw Russia as the arch-nemesis of freedom and revolution worldwide and would support any war against them. The Catholic Church supported Napoleon's war against the heretic Orthodox, and they were also upset about Russia's oppression of Catholic Poland. Russia had also recently been forcibly converting Ukrainian Catholics to Orthodox, so the Catholic Church was just foaming at the mouth against Russia by this point. Then there was the army. The army had supported Napoleon III basically because his last name was Bonaparte, and they were eager for the glory and the combat that Napoleon I had led them to so many years ago. They also had a bone to pick with Russia for the disaster of 1812, Napoleon's catastrophic invasion that led to the demise of his empire. The army was upset that Napoleon III hadn't already gone to war with Russia to match the glory and honor of his beloved uncle. One of Napoleon's ministers told him that if he failed to stand up to Russia, The first time you pass before your troops, you will see their faces saddened, the ranks silenced, and you will feel the ground shake beneath your feet. So to win back the army, you must take some risks. So France was primed and ready to go to war. Napoleon had three goals in doing so. To shore up his position at home, to break up the concert of Europe, and to gain a foreign ally. And for this ally, he looked to the country that had done more than any other to defeat his uncle, the great Napoleon I. The country that had been France's traditional enemy for centuries. Napoleon III sought an alliance with Britain. So why did Britain end up joining the Crimean War? Well, it wasn't like the government wanted it. Lord Aberdeen, the Prime Minister, was extremely isolationist, conservative, and unwilling to enter into any wars in the European continent. He was probably the least warlike politician in Great Britain. But Britain had free speech, a free press, and a freer society than any other country in Europe. So he had to deal with public opinion. The British were pro-war and anti-Russia for three major reasons. Capitalists and nationalists saw Russia as a major threat to their empire abroad, especially India, and believed that if Russia entered the Mediterranean, it would threaten their dominance of that sea. Liberals and radicals saw Russia as the authoritarian villain of Europe, the great tyrant of the East that loomed over the rest of the continent, an enemy of freedom everywhere. Even Karl Marx, in exile in Britain, promoted the war against Russia, seeing it as the greatest future enemy of his worldwide communist revolution. Ironic, considering what happens to Russia in the 20th century. But the biggest spur to British intervention was the plight of Eastern Europeans crushed beneath the heel of the Tsar. Refugees from the Hungarian, Polish, and Romanian revolutions, all oppressed by the Russians, had taken refuge in Britain, and they stirred up British anger against the Eastern menace. 
The British identified the Polish and Hungarians especially as freedom fighters, the vanguard of democracy against the dark shadow of tyranny. And now that the Russians were threatening the Ottoman Empire, one more weak country in the path of their steamroller, British opinion rallied against them. It also painted the Ottoman Empire as like this, you know, wonderful, glorious, liberal paradise when it was really anything but. The British politician, Lord Palmerston, rode the wave of public opinion. Palmerston was a diehard liberal interventionist and an opponent of Lord Aberdeen's isolationist policy. He wanted a war, a war that would drive back the great menace of the East and liberate the oppressed peoples of the Tsar's empire, a great crusade of European values against Asiatic tyranny. The reformist spirit of the English middle class, the grassroots patriotism of the working class, and especially the influence of mass media from the London Times to the tabloids forced Lord Aberdeen's hand. The massacre at Sinope could not go unanswered. The British had to act. At the end of December 1853, the British and French governments ordered their fleets to pass through the Bosporus and enter the Black Sea. The massacre at Sinope had united these two old enemies into joint military action. When Lord Aberdeen complained to Queen Victoria that he was despised this public opinion forcing them to make these decisions, he was petrified of starting a great European war, she responded that she hated the idea too. But war was now inevitable. I told him this would never do, that it was to save more bloodshed and a more dreadful war, that it was necessary it should take place now, for that a patch-up would be very dangerous. On February 27th, 1854, Britain and France issued Russia an ultimatum. Withdrawal from the Danubian principalities, or its war. Tsar Nicholas expected Austria to interfere on his behalf to get Britain and France to back off, but Emperor Franz Josef refused. Austria remained officially neutral, but quietly aligned herself towards the Western powers. Nicholas was deeply betrayed by Austria's refusal to help him in his war, especially since he had bailed them out so recently against the Hungarian Revolution in 1848. Austria and Russia had had a close alliance for decades, but when it came time to put up or shut up, the Austrians had shut up. Russian aggression was a threat to their power in the Balkans, and they were not willing to take that risk. But even without the Austrians, the Tsar was ready to fight. When Napoleon III sent a personal message to the Tsar proposing a peace deal, Nicholas hurled back an aggressive challenge that France would find Russia just as dangerous in 1854 as they had in 1812. The Tsar would not back down, even faced with all of Europe, even facing international sanctions and condemnation, even risking all the gains Russia had made in the last 30 years. He believed Russia had a holy mission to unite the Slavs and the Orthodox. Let them come. We can take them. Tsar Nicholas said, Nothing is left for me but to fight, to win, or to perish with honor. As a martyr of our holy faith, and when I say this, I declare it in the name of Russia. All the escalations, all the insecurities, all the gambles and fears and ambitions, it had all come to this. And public opinion, not the decisions of lords or dukes or kings or queens or any aristocrat, had played the critical role in Britain, in France, and even in the Ottoman Empire. It had been the people who decided in the end to go to war. And even if no one realized it, this marked a new age in the history of Europe, where no government, whether a constitutional monarchy, a modern dictatorship, or an ancient Islamic empire, 
could ignore the will of the people. The masses that had boiled beneath the surface throughout the Victorian age were finally making themselves heard. Popular passions, not the calm hands of the ruling class, sent Europe to war. One of the first major changes the Crimean War would cause in the history of humanity. On March 28, 1854, the Allies stated that Russia had ignored demands for peace, had engaged in the massacre at Sinope, and refused to respond to their ultimatum. Britain and France, the two great powers of Western Europe, formally declared war on the Russian Empire. There was no going back now. One Russian courtier, Anna Tucheva, described Tsar Nicholas's mood as the peace of Europe collapsed. The Don Quixote of aristocrats, terrible in his chivalry and power to subordinate everything to his futile struggle against history. Europe had struggled against the tides of history since the Congress of Vienna, but the tides were rising. History has a way of catching up. All the pieces were on the board. Diplomacy had failed. Europe was in its first great power war since the downfall of Napoleon. The concert of Europe was broken. It had been a victim of the typical prisoner's dilemma. It had been in everyone's best interest to keep the concert of Europe alive. But fear, insecurity, and vulnerability, both external and internal, had won out over logic and reason. Four armies, British, French, Ottoman, and Russian, were on the road to battle. They would collide on an oddly shaped peninsula in the Black Sea that would give the conflict its name. The war had begun. The Crimea beckoned. Thanks so much for starting this story with me today. It's only getting rolling, so I hope you guys are primed for part two. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, but make sure you get it in writing, otherwise it doesn't count. If you don't, tell your enemies, but you may need to engage in some diplomacy, aka advanced lying, to get this podcast out there. If you want to check out my sources, they're all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. You got a question, you got advice, you got anything you want to say, I'd love to hear it. And guys, we're only getting started. Next week, the Crimean War will continue. Next week, we meet four armies, British, French, Russian, and Ottoman, and watch them collide in Europe's first battle between the great powers since Waterloo. Nothing will be the same after blood flows on the Alma River. So see you for part two, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers.